Uh, well, welcome to you all uh, from me. This sounds a wee bit uh, high. Does that sound high to you? I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, welcome to you all. I'm so pleased that you're here this afternoon. I mean, bank holiday weekend, you could have been off uh, around the country or, or even abroad, but you've chosen to be here this afternoon. I'm so pleased at that. We know there are some missing who are uh, away, and we trust they're having a great time. Uh, but we're so thankful to be together with family, aren't we, uh, this afternoon, uh, and to be worshipping our God together. Um, as James says, we're kicking off a new series, a mini-series uh, this Sunday, uh, a new series on the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Uh, and it's a short series, it's just three weeks, uh, and this afternoon we're going to be looking at the gospel for you, uh, and then in subsequent weeks we're going to be looking at the gospel for us uh, together, and uh, then the final week uh, will be the gospel for them, uh, because we recognize that actually God's put us here you know, in community to be sharing the good news of Jesus with others. So we want to understand how the gospel applies to our own lives, how it applies to the lives of us as we meet in community, but also how it applies to us as we're out in the world, mixing with work colleagues, with neighbors, with family, and with friends. And you know, this is foundational teaching. You know, this is at the heart of our beliefs. And so we need to understand it. We need to get a grip of it. You know, this is going to be a fantastic lead-in uh, to a, a program that we're going to be running, a course that we're going to be running, uh, starting a bit later, I was going to say later in May. It's actually the 30th of April, isn't it? So uh, it, it, In May, anyway. We're going to be starting this course on Wednesday evenings, uh, and it's called Gospel Fluency. Uh, and I would encourage you all to participate in this course. It is going to be brilliant for us uh, as a church community. Um, we're going to be watching uh, some short videos together as we gather, uh, but then having time to discuss those videos and time to actually practice some of the stuff that we learn through those videos. And, and as you might imagine, the term gospel fluency uh, is a bit of a clue, really. It's about us becoming fluent in how we can share the gospel uh, with other people, uh, particularly those who are non-Christians, those who uh, are, are still looking, still seeking yet to find uh, Jesus for themselves. But the gospel applies, actually, to every situation that we encounter uh, in life. And we can use the gospel to speak truth into other people's lives when they're struggling, struggling in different situations. So we're going to come together as a church on Wednesday evenings. We're going to share food together to start with, uh, which is always great. Uh, a, great uh, a great time to just get to know one another better. Uh, but then we're going to be uh, looking at this course uh, together. Uh, so that's Wednesday evenings. There will be uh, a follow-up evening on Thursdays for those who can't make it. We're conscious that uh, husband and wife can't always be there together if there are children in the household. So uh, we will be doing an online one on Thursday evenings to, uh, as it were, mop up those who can't get there on a Wednesday night. Okay, so we're going to seek this afternoon to understand what we mean when we talk about the gospel, and in particular the gospel uh, for you. And, and there's just so many passages uh, that we could look at, uh, but we're going to base ourselves... In, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, uh, but we will reference others. Uh, we're going to read from uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. I should, just, I should just say, 
we have some new, super improved Bibles on the table at the back. If you've, if you've come out this afternoon so excited to be here and forgotten to pick up your Bible or you haven't brought a Bible with you, uh, these Bibles are on the table at the back. And I say super improved. I mean, it's, it's God's Word, as, was, uh, as were the previous, uh, previous Bibles. But this is the, uh, the English Standard Version, ESV, which is the version that we tend to preach from, and the, the words will tie up with those on the screen. So if you haven't got a Bible with you and you want to follow uh, the words, uh, then grab a Bible from the back table. They're there. Uh, thanks to Madeline for organizing those for us. Okay, let's read from uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 5,000 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, some of you might say, why are you teaching on the gospel? 
we've heard it before. Actually, do you know what? We've responded uh, to the gospel. We've believed. And I guess for many of you here this afternoon, that's true. Not necessarily all, but for many, that's true. But even if you would say that you're a Christian here this afternoon, we still need to hear the message of the gospel. So why do I say that? Well, Paul here is writing to the Corinthian Christians, and look at what he says to them. He, Paul, has preached to them. They've heard, and they've responded. They're Christians. And yet he speaks of reminding them. Let's put some context to that. You know, some Corinthians, some Corinthian Christians had departed from a true understanding of their faith, the true and full message of the gospel. In particular, denying the resurrection, that glorious event that we celebrated just a few weeks ago, the resurrection uh, of Jesus. Paul then takes the opportunity to remind them of the full gospel, the full gospel truth. But there's another reason too, and this reason is just as applicable today. The gospel is not just to be heard and responded to on one occasion. The message of the gospel is something that needs to impact our lives daily. It applies to every situation in life. It applies to every situation in our lives and every situation in the lives of the people that we encounter day by day. People who are struggling in work and struggling to feel you know, their place in work and are they honored in work and, and so on. People who are struggling in family life. People who are struggling in their marriages. You know, the gospel speaks into every situation of life. The gospel is relevant to every situation in life. So we need to hear it repeatedly. It's so important. Paul says it's of first importance. Above all else, we need to keep hearing the message of the gospel and applying it in our lives. You know, it's by this gospel that we're saved. We can't fudge this, you know. In fact, if you, if you do, if you, if you try to move away from this, as some of the Corinthian Christians were, you deny the truth. Then whatever you believe, your belief is in vain. It's fruitless. It won't accomplish anything. It's not the true gospel. It's not saving faith. It won't result in life. The first element that Paul highlights is that Jesus died for our sins, theirs and ours. Jesus' crucifixion and the events that followed are core to our Christian faith. These events are not just of huge historical significance for the whole of mankind, actually, but they have the potential to change the future destiny of all those who act on them. To understand the importance of this, we need to go right back to creation, as Paul does later in this passage. 
In verses 21 and 22 we read, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Back in Genesis, we read the account of the creation. God created people to be in perfect relationship with him and with each other. He created them with free will. He didn't create them as automatons. They could determine whether they loved him and whether they obeyed him or not. Had it been any other way, then they would have been merely robots, just fulfilling what they were programmed to do. And he gave them rule over every living creature and provided for their sustenance in everything that he created, in the plants and trees. But there was one tree, only one tree, the fruit of which they were told they should not eat. Now understand me, this was not some mean prohibition by God. This wasn't God being unkind. This was to keep them from harm. It seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Just one tree you can't eat of the fruit of. And all went well to start with. Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, all was fine. Adam and Eve loved and obeyed God. Life was good. There was no sickness. There was no sin. There was no suffering. Relationships were good. In fact, everything was just perfect, just as God had intended. That's the message of Genesis 1 and 2. But then the picture changes in chapter 3. Enter the devil from stage left. He manages to deceive them. He persuaded them that, actually, how can it be that God loves you if he denies you in this way? He contradicted what God had told them would be the consequences of eating the fruit of the tree that God had said was off limits. And they believed the lie. They believed the lie that God was trying to control them and that they'd be better off without him. They thought that they could be like God. And that was too much of a temptation for them. And so, having been given free will, they exercised that free will in eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that one act, sin entered the world. And along with sin, the consequences of it, in pain and suffering, shame and death, sin marred the relationship that God had intended to have with man. We see that immediately afterwards. When Adam and Eve were walking in the garden and they heard the Lord God and they hid. They knew they had sinned against God. They knew they'd done wrong and they were ashamed. And their shame caused them to hide from God. They now knew that they were naked and they were now afraid of God. 
Now, clearly, we weren't present in the garden at that time. Not even I was. Uh, but, uh, and we didn't eat of the fruit of the tree. But in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, Paul tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You know, since the time of Adam, every person except Jesus has been born with a predisposition to sin. You know, that's our default position. And we know from our own experience, I know from mine, and I think you probably know from yours, it doesn't take long before that tendency reveals itself. We all sin from an early age in life. And if you're a parent, you've seen it in your children. You know, we look at a little babe and we say, oh, aren't they, aren't they perfect? But actually, their, their predisposition is to sin. And we see that coming out very early in life. And then it's not long before we become sinners by choice. And actually then, sinners by habit. And there are consequences for our sin. We know from our own experience that when we sin, it causes harm to others around us. Maybe we end up hurting others physically or emotionally by our actions or our words. And it can lead to a breakdown of trust. It can lead to wrong decisions being made that impact the lives of many people. And those things can be quite serious. But actually, the consequences of our sin are much more serious for us personally. The Bible teaches us that God cannot look on sin. That sin is abhorrent to him. Sin causes a separation between God and man. Because God is perfect and we are not. The separation would lead to an eternity spent apart from God, our creator. Since he is the giver of life, separation from him is death. Letter to the Ephesians, Paul puts it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Wow. It sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it, really? But it need not be. While Scripture teaches us that there is no remission for sin apart from the shedding of blood, God, our Creator, in His loving kindness, provided the perfect sacrifice. Reading on in Ephesians, we have one of the great buts. I love it when we have a but where God intervenes and God changes the dynamic, where God's intervention turns things around. And Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is amazing stuff, isn't it? Is it? Is it amazing stuff? I think it is. I think it's amazing. God didn't require us to change before we could be saved. What chance would we have had? You know, it would be impossible for us to earn his favor. So he provided one in Jesus whose sacrifice on the cross could cancel out our sin and the consequences of it and give us new life. This is the incredible and inestimable, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to say that word, the inestimable grace of God that Tom was talking about last week. And he said the word without any difficulty. The inestimable grace of God. The grace that can take us from the gutter, living lives that are riddled with sin, and exchange our filthy rags for garments that make us fit to stand before the King of Kings, our Creator. You know, this reminds me of the story that Jesus told that we call the parable of the prodigal son. In that, as you will recall, there was a younger son who was just like I've described. He took his share of his father's inheritance and disappeared off to a far country where he squandered it in reckless living, wild living, living a life of depravity until his money ran out and he was destitute. And he ended up looking after the pigs. And only then, only then did he come to his senses and realize that, hey, I'd be better off if I was a servant in my father's house. So he returned. And there was a glorious reconciliation where he was restored, not as a servant in his father's house, but as a son. He was adorned with a robe. He had sandals put on his feet and a ring on his finger, all signs to denote his sonship. But we read on in that story that there was another son, an elder son, who'd been at home all this time while his brother was off uh, living the wild life. This elder son had been working for his father, and he was none too impressed when his father organized a feast to celebrate his younger son's return. The older son was angry. His father was using his share of the inheritance to celebrate the return of the brother who'd squandered his own share. You know, the older brother's response is very telling. We read it in Luke 15. We read he was angry and refused to go in to the celebration. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, 
Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat, young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now you might think his response was entirely justifiable. But think of the meaning behind the story that Jesus is telling. Now it's a parable, it has a meaning uh, behind it. The older son thought he could earn his father's favor and his share of the inheritance by remaining part of the family and by keeping his father's commands. That's not so different to today. There are those today who think that by growing up in a Christian family, that's sufficient to benefit from God's favor. You know what? I was there once. I grew up in a Christian family. I went to church every Sunday. I guess the gospel was preached, but it, it went over my head if it was. And it didn't impact me at all. But I'm so thankful for youth leaders that took me aside and explained to me that actually what God was calling for was a personal relationship with me. Yeah. Not that I could somehow earn his favor by clinging on to my parents' coattails or something like that, and that I would get dragged into the kingdom on their coattails. No, I needed a relationship with Jesus myself. And for that, I needed to confess my sins and ask for forgiveness and ask him to just guide me through my life. And there are others who think that in some way they can make themselves worthy of sharing in the inheritance. We hear people saying things like, well, you know, I've lived a good life. I give to charity. You know, I do all sorts of things for the poor. You know, when I see someone on the street, I help them out. I've never harmed anyone. So it must mean, you know, that God looks upon me in favor. People measure themselves against others, and in doing so, invariably look at others who they consider worse than themselves. So they look good, don't they? Rather than seeing what God has to say about them. Those verses in Ephesians and many others make it clear that our salvation is purely a matter of grace. God's grace extended to us. That we can do absolutely nothing to earn his favor or earn our way into an eternity with him. We're saved by grace and what's required of us is that we acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge that we have deliberately gone against God in so many ways, in every aspect of our lives probably. And to ask his forgiveness and to put our trust in Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But actually, the message of the gospel doesn't stop there at the cross. No, thankfully, it goes beyond. And Paul, in our main passage, goes on to address what happened next. And the fact that some of the Corinthian Christians had strayed away from believing this, he says... Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He tells them that their faith is futile if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And if that wasn't true, that they would still be dead in their sins. The resurrection was part of God's plan. There's prophecies in the Old Testament that allude to it. And Jesus himself said that he would rise from the dead three days after he was crucified. You know, in Mark's gospel, there's three occasions in close proximity where Jesus specifically speaks of this to his disciples. So why is this so essential? Well, for Christians, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in history. It means that Christ defeated not just sin on the cross, but he's defeated death. Death could not hold him. He's overcome death. And because of that, those who place their trust in Jesus can know the promise of eternal life, the promise of an eternity spent with him. We can have new life in Jesus. When God calls time and Jesus returns, we can be sure that we will join with him in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, and no more sin. Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning that others will follow. Others, those who believe in him, will share in that resurrection. So through Jesus' resurrection, we can know new life in him. We can enjoy a relationship with God our Father through what Jesus has accomplished, through what Jesus has done. And we can know the empowering of the Holy Spirit in this life and the assurance that we will know him and be with him in eternity. Do you know all of this? Do you believe it all? Not just parts of it. Not just picking and choosing like the Corinthians were, or some of them. For you, is it just head knowledge? You know, yes, I've heard it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can believe it on one level. Has it moved from your head to your heart? Is it impacting your life? Has it resulted in you believing it and taking it for yourself? Putting your trust in the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus? You know, this is a message that demands a response. We can't sit on the fence with this message. We either believe and take it seriously or we deny Jesus. We either accept him or we reject him. And it's not sufficient to just make that one decision on one day of your life 
to say, yes, Jesus, I understand this and I accept it for myself. And then just to go back to your, your old ways and carry on living as you've always lived. You know, the gospel is here to be applied to every situation in life, as I say. That's where we're going to gain huge benefit from gospel fluency in just understanding for ourselves, actually, but also for the lives of those people who we mix with day after day in our work situations, our neighbors, our family, and our friends. We're going to learn so much about how we can take everyday situations and introduce Jesus to people and the power of Jesus and the gospel into people's lives. You know, we can see marriages transformed. We can see relationships in family life transformed by the gospel. We can see people who, for whom life is meaningless at the moment suddenly realize that actually there is meaning in life. I now know why I've been put on this earth. And there is meaning in life. You know, with any decision, there are consequences or things that flow naturally from it. You know, when I got married, you know, it wasn't just a decision on one day. And then I just, you know, went off and, you know, lived and, you know, mixed with my mates and did all the stuff that I might have done before I was married and ignored the fact that, you know, Anne was at home and, and on all the rest. That would be bizarre, wouldn't it? You know, you take a decision and it impacts your life. You know, you accept a new job offer. You know, it impacts your life. You know, I think your employer expects you to turn up on the first day, for example. You don't just accept the offer and sign the contract and that's it. No, you turn up on the first day. And actually, they expect you to fulfill what it says on your job description and all that sort of stuff. You know, there are consequences for our decisions, as there are from our decision to accept the gospel message. And firstly, the first consequence is, you know, we, we love God. Once we've understood the love that caused God to act in sending Jesus and the huge sacrifice that Jesus made in going to the cross to take on himself our sin. We cannot help, cannot help but love him in return. We don't do it out of obligation. It's a natural response to all he's done for us and the fact that he saved us for eternity. He saved us from an eternity banished from his presence. You know, as with any relationship based on love, we want to spend time with him. You know, this is true to Amia's word earlier on. We want to spend time with him. We want to talk with him. We want to share our joys. We want to share our, our problems, our fears. And because he is God, we know he is always there for us. That he understands and cares for us perfectly. That he knows what's best for us. Who better can we turn to? What better friend can we ever have? Secondly, we want to serve and obey him. I choose the word very carefully. We want to. We don't have to. We want to serve and obey him. When we love someone, we want to do things to please them. 
You know, in my relationship with Anne, I look to do things that I know will help her or I know will please her. I don't do these things because it was written down in some marriage preparation manual or to make her love me or to earn her favor. I'm secure in the knowledge that she loves me. I do them because I want to. I do them because I want to please her and because I love her. And so it is with our relationship with God. If you see Jesus' teaching as an onerous set of rules to be kept, you can do this or you shouldn't do that, you've missed the point. You've fallen into the same misunderstanding that the older brother has in that parable that Jesus taught. He kept all the rules and requirements of his father, but with his eye on the inheritance, in order to earn his share of that inheritance, he hadn't stayed with his father and served him out of love for him and, and the relationship that they should have enjoyed. You know, when you, hit, when you read the story, the parable that Jesus told of the father looking out day after day uh, for the younger son to return, that speaks of the heart of the father. And I believe if he had that heart for the younger son, he had that heart for the older son who was at home too. So the love was flowing in one direction from the older son to the father. Sorry, from the father to the older son. But this older son had his eye on the inheritance, not his eye on the relationship with his father. You know, we serve and obey God not to earn his favor, but because we're already benefiting from his favor. Because he's poured out his love and his grace into our hearts. We're not called to be passive. Genuine faith will be evident in the good works that flow from this. It's not good works that gain us his favor. It's good works that flow from what he has done in us. We want to please him. We want to, we want to show our gratitude for what he has done for us where our actions and lifestyle are inconsistent with the expression of faith, then you know our, the genuineness of our faith has to be questioned. What we do and how we live our lives are evidence of our salvation. Take as an example Abraham. His trust and faith in God was proven and was very evident when he obeyed and took Isaac you know, this son, this precious son, you know, born when he, when he uh, Abraham, was 100 years old, son promised to him. But he was prepared to take him and prepared to sacrifice him because that was what God had asked him to do. But amazingly, God provided that replacement sacrifice. You know, we... Do good works. The good works that we do flow out of hearts that have been changed by God, not because we're trying to earn his favor. And then thirdly, we're, we're part of his family. That's the other change that comes about. 
when we believe. We're part of a family. We're caught up in family. It's so good to be together uh, with family. Ephesians 1 speaks of us being adopted into God's family. We're sons and daughters of the living God, the King of kings. We are co-heirs with Jesus. We're not called just to be part of the global church, but to be in relationship with brothers and sisters locally. That's where we work out our faith. We're to be in family because that's where we can be supported and provide support for one another. It's where we can encourage one another and where we can work out our differences. You know, we don't always agree, you know, but we work those differences out in family life. Why do we need family? Well, as we all know, the Christian life is not a walk in the park. Uh, have you noticed that? I mean, it's not a bed of roses, is it? We need encouragement and support to persevere, to press on. It can seem a struggle at times. And it seems we're not alone in this. You may recall from our recent series when we were, when we were looking at the, uh, the letter of Paul to the Philippians, Paul wrote of pressing on pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm so thankful that Jesus ascended to his Father and is sat at the right hand, interceding on our behalf, urging us on and pleading our cause with the Father. Not only that, but he sent the Holy Spirit to help us in living out our lives for him. But I'm also thankful, so thankful for you guys here who God has put me alongside because you and your contributions and your prayers help shape me to become more like Jesus. That's why we're together in family. Brothers and sisters, if you've been saved through the sacrifice of Jesus, that's the start of an exciting journey, not the conclusion. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We can be so confident of that. So let's keep pressing on. Let's keep persevering. I want to pray uh, in conclusion and then we're going to uh, share communion together. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for the message of the gospel. We're so thankful for that good news that you were prepared to leave your father's side and to come to earth, that you lived a perfect life and yet you were prepared to go to the cross and take on yourself our sin and our shame. We're so thankful that you conquered sin and you conquered death when you rose from the grave. And that you now ascended to the Father and interceding there for us. And we want to thank you for the invitation that you give to us to, to accept that forgiveness that is on offer for our sins.
to have our lives turned around by, by you, to follow you, and to know that personal relationship with you, to know your presence with us as we go through life, as we face different challenges, to know your presence with us. I pray for any here this afternoon who, who maybe have heard that message before but not received it or have heard, heard it in part but not full. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us to take seriously the message of the gospel. I pray you'd help us to apply the gospel daily in our lives that as we face the challenges of life that we would not apply the world's uh, wisdom uh, to those situations, but we would apply your wisdom, we'd apply your word, that we'd apply the gospel to those situations, that the gospel would speak into every situation that we face and every situation that we're presented with by those around us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to have this message of truth so firmly etched on our hearts that we cannot but share it with other people. Lord Jesus, would you do a massive work in us by your Holy Spirit this afternoon? Would you help us to take this message for ourselves in full? Would you help us take this message for us as a community of believers? Would you help us take this message for those that you've put us alongside, that we would be salt and light in the places where you've put us? be those that are able to share the gospel of truth, the good news with those around us. I pray you'd empower us in this in Jesus' name. Amen.